Paul writing to Timothy, a young minister. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Amen. You may be seated in the... Amen. Wonderful. Name of the Lord. The original writings um, are called autographs. The original books, letters written by Paul, Peter, James, called autographs, and they have perished. And critics are prone to point that out when they are criticizing God's Word. <clears throat> the moist climate of Israel would have wreaked havoc on the original autographs, but there are manuscripts, Jewish scribes, regarded Scripture uh, with an uncomprehendable awe. And so they would bury the old scripture lest the material upon which the Lord's holy name was written would be misused. They were very rigid. They were very strict on how they would um, uh, copy one manuscript to another, for example, the book of Isaiah in the synagogue, if they were to copy the book of Isaiah, uh, they were very strict about copying it from one parchment to another. Um, and they would make sure that there would be no errors, and then they would take the original parchment, maybe worn out from years of use, and they would bury it. Uh, and so these... This lesson, this this uh, attitude of taking God's word so seriously, uh, was in the original Christians because they were Jewish. They understood the importance of preserving God's word, um, and so um, Christians affirmed that their writing was as anointed and as inspired as the writing of the Old Testament. And so it was reliable. You have very few textual differences uh, that have been discovered that cover the first 150 to 200 years of manuscripts uh, from the New Testament. Search the scriptures, the Bible says. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And a jigsaw puzzle, you could look at the Bible as a jigsaw puzzle of 31,173 pieces. That's how many verses there are in the Bible. It covers 1,189 chapters located in 66 books. A puzzle is enjoyable at times. But it would be difficult if you didn't know what you were trying to put together. Possible, but difficult. So I think it's good to look at the picture on the front of the puzzle box to understand the overall picture. 
2 Peter 3 and 18 says, But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. And it, it takes diligence to grow in Christ. Uh, Paul said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of um, uh, diligence, growing. So when we continually press toward God, we grow in Christ. So when we don't press toward God, we don't grow. It's the same with God's word. Bless you. A puzzle doesn't put itself together. You... Have you, anyone ever hear the argument of the thousand monkeys? If you put a thousand monkeys in a room with typewriters, they say that if you give them a billion years, one of them, by chance, may be able to, just by chance, write uh, all the writings of Shakespeare. But we know that that's not true. It's not true. A monkey could not do that. It takes intelligence. Same way with God's word. It, it, it takes intelligence. Somebody's got to sit down and say, I'm going to read his word. I'm going to learn from God's word. Uh, it doesn't, God's word doesn't just put itself together. God's word doesn't just somehow through osmosis give us the strength. You can't. You, you, you can't wake up in the morning every morning and go, you know, through osmosis. God, just let your word penetrate my brain and so I can live for you. No, you got to open it. You got to read it. You got to study it. You've got you've got to press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of, of God in Christ Jesus. You've got to diligently seek him because that's who he rewards. Those who diligently uh, seek him. The Bible, it's complex. It's complicated. It has a cast member of 3,000 people, over 1,500 geographical sites. It covers many Eastern customs and manners. It spans thousands of years. Sometimes people will pick up a piece of the puzzle. They'll hear a sermon. They'll read a scripture. They'll get a word from God during devotions, and they will begin to put the pieces together. The, in, in the picture of what God's will is for your life, the, the, the uh, mosaic of, of God's purpose in your life will begin to come together. Piece by piece, prayer by prayer, praise by praise, scripture by scripture, sermon by sermon. And so false teachers can lead people astray by, by leaving out pieces of the puzzle or by, by uh, taking scriptures out of context. When I was a, a kid, uh, I, 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 you know, you would force puzzles together. You know, uh, this piece is going to fit, even though it's just not. It's not the right piece. People with uh, who teach false doctrines, cults, uh, will will force words and scriptures together that have nothing to do. You know, he said it over and over. The New Testament was written to people who are already saved. It was not written to people who were lost. Written to those who are saved. And so you take the book of Acts and you see how the first church treated those who are lost and how the first church 
portrayed the gospel to those who are lost. And that's how you know what the gospel message is to the lost. You can't take a scripture written, uh, those that, 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 um, uh, 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 diligently, you know, seek the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible. He that comes to God must believe that he is. He's a reward of those that diligently seek him. That was written to us. We're to diligently seek him. I, I, I would tell somebody who's lost, you need to repent of your sins. Right? You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Praise God. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. So it's important that we have truth. It's important that we rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2 and 15. There was this newlywed couple, youngest on the block. They had purchased this little snug bungalow and they spent a lot of money remodeling, decorating the place. And their next door neighbor, she was an ancient Centric. She had watched them doing all the work. She she was a former socialite. And so when they finished the remodeling project, she invited herself over. And she came over to their house and and she was followed into her into the house by this big black Labrador retriever. And the dog began to chase the newlyweds uh pet Siamese cat. And the room was trashed, drinks were spilled on the new carpet, and expensive lamp fell. Off an end table, drapes are ripped, trash was toppled, and, and while all the while this visitor is just watching in astonishment uh, out of the corner of her eye. And the hosts are doing the same thing, and the conversation is strained. The old, the old socialite is, is flustered, and, and the, the uh, newlyweds are frustrated. And so finally, uh, uh, the old lady gets up to leave, and, and she is... At the door, and the neighbors say, will you please take your dog with you? And the old eccentric turns back and says, dear young lady, that is not my dog. <laughs> I thought the beast was yours. You've heard the story. Never assume you know the whole story. That's why we continually read his word. We continually add to our relationship with God through his word. Not every sermon has ever been preached. You can't say I've heard every sermon that's ever been preached. I've, God has spoken to me and all he's ever going to speak to me. No, no, he hasn't. God is new. Every day he gives you a new word. Every day he gives you a new presence, a new uh, uh, command. So you have these two testaments, the Old Testament with its 39 books, the New with its 27, representing the two covenants God made with his people. The first covenant covers, uh, it centers around the law given at Mount Sinai with Moses. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Ezekiel 36 says, A new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. You'll keep my judgments and you'll do them. So uh, Jesus says at the Last Supper, uh, he talks about his blood being the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. Therefore, uh, we refer to the law the, of Mount Sinai and Moses, we refer to it as the Old Testament or the 
the old covenant and then the latter with Christ as the new covenant, the new testament. And they don't contradict. The new testament doesn't replace the old testament. It fulfills the old testament. Augustine wrote that the old testament, it's revealed in the new. The new is veiled in the old. The new is contained in the old. The old is explained in the new. And so the basic principles of God have not changed. Truth remains the same. Truth is truth. Murder is still murder. Stealing is still stealing. And salvation is still found under the blood covenant of the Almighty. Even when it comes to God, I have a book in my library, The God of Two Testaments. Genesis 1, 17 and 1 says, Jehovah is the Almighty. Revelation 1 and 8 says, Jesus is the Almighty. Exodus 3 and 14, God says, I am to Moses. And John 8 and 58, Jesus says, I am. Psalms 18 and 2 calls Jehovah the Rock. 1 Corinthians 10 and 4 calls Jesus the Rock. Psalms 18 and 2 says, Jehovah is the horn of our salvation. Luke 1 and 69 says, Jesus is the horn of our salvation. Psalms 23 and 1 says that Jehovah is the shepherd. And yet Jesus in 10 and 11 is called the shepherd. Psalms 24, 7 through 10, Jehovah is the king of glory. 1 Corinthians 2 and 8, Jesus is the king of glory. Psalms 27 and 1, Jehovah is the light. John 1, 4 through 9. Jesus is the light. Psalms 136 and 3. Jehovah is the Lord of Lords. Revelation 1 and 8. Or Revelation 19 and 16. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Isaiah 12 and 6. Jehovah is the Holy One. Acts 2 and 27. Jesus is the Holy One. Isaiah 41 and 4. Jehovah is the first and the last. Yet Revelation 1 and 8. Jesus is the first and the last. How do you have two firsts? In two lasts. Isaiah 43 and 11. We read a lot of these last week. Jehovah is the only Savior. Titus 2 and 13 and Acts 4 and 12. Jesus is our only Savior. Isaiah 54 and 5. Jehovah is our Redeemer. In Galatians 3 and 13. Jesus is our Redeemer. You see church. There are not two gods for two testaments. There's one God in different manifestations in a testament that has fulfilled another testament. It is not that it's replaced it, it's fulfilled it. And so the basic difference between the two testaments is this. If you could put it in one sentence. The Old Testament is where the laws of God were written on stone. And the New Testament is where the laws of God are written on our hearts through the gift of the Holy Ghost. So now we have something within us, amen, that, that, that works with our conscience, praise God, to live for God. It's the New Testament. It's the new law. It is God's Spirit. First, Second uh, Corinthians 3 and 3, 4, as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Church, don't, don't hesitate to say, God, write your laws on my heart. Amen. That I would not sin against thee. 
Ezekiel 11 and 19, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I'll take the stony heart out of their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh and they will walk in my statues and keep my ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. So the symbolic worship of the tabernacle sacrificial system, it anticipated with faith this coming promise which is fulfilled in the New Testament. Everything you read in the Old Testament is an anticipation of a fulfillment in the New Testament. The Day of Atonement, uh, the Passover, these are anticipations of Jesus Christ atoning for our sins, of, 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 of His blood covering us. Amen. And so we have God's Word. We have the Old Testament arranged law and prophets grouped into classifications. The law, the prophets, the writings. And then they're put in order by rank of the writings. The writings are the, the major and minor prophets. And so you're, you have your most major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You have your minor prophets, your Malachi and your, your, Hef, your, your Zephaniah, your, your Habakkuk. And, uh, and so they're put in that order. Jesus speaks of these divisions, Matthew 7 and 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Talking about the Old Testament. Luke 24 and 44, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So around 200 B.C., uh, the Hebrews translated the Old Testament into Greek. And this is called the Septuagint. And it's important. First of all, the Septuagint rearranged the books. It, it, it reclassified them. It, it, it split books up. And so you, you had, now you have First and Second Kings when that was just one book before. First and Second Chronicles. You have Jeremiah and Lamentations. That was one book before. But, but the Septuagint uh, uh, splits them up. And so, you have, uh, uh, um, obviously, more than one. But what was also important is that that uh, this new Greek order of the Old Testament was a template for the New Testament writers. So when they put the 27 books of the New Testament together, they followed the... the um, the precepts, they followed the principle of the Septuagint. And so they canonized the word, uh, they canonized the 27 books of the New Testament uh, uh, because the Septuagint had canonized the Old Testament. Uh, it's interesting, and I know I've talked about this before, the 27 books of the New Testament uh, right all the way back to like 150 A.D. Uh, at the toward the end of the second generation uh, Christians, these 27 books are already being mentioned as the New Testament Bible. Uh, even though the word canonization didn't come around for another hundred or so years, that that canonization was just a group of ministers who got together and said, "Okay, let's go ahead and and, and say." These are the 27 books. It wasn't that they chose the 27 books at that time. They had already been chosen. For example, you know, like one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. It wasn't okay to steal before that. 
they just said, well, maybe we, the Lord said, let's write it down. So the canonization that took place in 3, 350 A.D., the 27 books have been established 100, 150 years earlier than that. They just said, let's put this down. These are the 27 books. One of the reasons they did this, and this isn't in my notes, but, but I always found it interesting when I was studying this, is that uh, you had strange gospels that were starting to come out. And so they decided, you know what? We, we need to put this in writing. These are the 27 books. You had a gospel that came out around 400, 350 A.D. called the Gospel of Thomas. And they said, well, this, this is a fifth gospel. We need to add it. And so they said, no, no, the Gospel of Thomas was not one of the original writings. And so later on, because the way Greek changed every decade to every 20 to every 30 years, uh, they can now tell you that the Gospel of Thomas was written some 200 years after the 27 books. And so you know that it was just a fraud. It was just somebody trying to to uh, uh, put together a fraud of one thing or another. So they canonized the New Testament much like they had the uh, uh, the Septuagint, the Old Testament. So you had the Gospels. You had Matthew, the book of Matthew, written to Jews. Jesus was king. Mark was written to the Romans. Jesus was a servant. Luke was written to the Greeks where Jesus was the Son of Man, and John was not one of the synoptic Gospels. John stands alone, and John was unique because he covered much information that's not mentioned in the other three. He wrote to the world, one writer said. He didn't write to a certain group. He wrote to the world. Um, studying the, the life of John, I can tell you that, that John became concerned as the first-generation Christians were dying off. And the second generation Christians were coming into power who had never seen Jesus, who had never seen him resurrect, who had never, who had never walked with him on earth. And so John penned the gospel, John, at the end of his life to let the second generation Christians know this is what happened. So he wrote it to a, a, a world instead of uh, Greeks or Hebrews or, or Gentiles. The book of Acts is unique because it gives us the only historical evidence of how the first church acted, how they treated new converts, uh, how they baptized, how they lived for God, how they treated God. Um, the book of Acts was written with the lost in mind. The lost can read the book of Acts and see how the first church uh, came into being. The epistles, the Pauline epistles, uh, and the general epistles, these were written to the saved, written to people already in church. Uh, the book of Romans was written to all the churches in Rome. Uh, the churches in Rome uh, uh, were a, a, a mixed church. They were, they were a church that started out Jews, as all churches did in the first century. Uh, and then uh, Jews were excommunicated from the city of Rome around 66 A.D., and so the Gentiles who had come into the church uh, became the leaders of all the churches in Rome, and then the Jews were allowed back into Rome, and so the Jews came back into the church churches, but they were no longer the leaders of the churches. So when you read the book of Romans, if you have that in mind, it helps you understand in such a deep level what Paul was saying to the churches in Rome, because there was this power struggle taking place 
between the Gentiles and the Jews on who was going to lead the church. And Paul was saying, hey, you're, you're both. You're both getting it wrong. You, Jesus Christ is supposed to be leading the church. Hallelujah. Not the doctrines of the old Jews and not the doctrines that the Gentiles had before they were saved. Jesus Christ. He's the leader. And so you had the epistles written to the apostolic Pentecostals. Uh, and so we have to be careful not to apply scriptures uh, uh, to lost souls. Uh, confess with your mouth. That was written to those who were already saved. Uh, confessing with your mouth, saying, I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, does not save somebody who's lost. If it did, that's what Peter would have said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When they said, what should we do? He would have said, confess with your mouth. But he didn't. He said, repent. Be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost. Paul said to those who are already saved, confess with your mouth. That tells us that we are to tell people about Jesus Christ. Amen. You have different dispensations. You have the dispensation of innocence, Adam and Eve. That was a short dispensation. You have the dispensation of the flood of Abraham, the dispensation of law with Moses, the dispensation of grace that we live in now. In Revelation, you'll see the dispensation of the wrath of God. You have the dispensation of the millennium. Uh, that covers uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth as he rules with an iron rod. And these dispensations cover 7,000 years. It is amazing how unified the Bible is. It does not contradict itself. 66 books of religion, of philosophy, of history in one book. There is no other collection that has so many authors, and yet there's one author. You can't compare anything to it. It is singular. It is a single message. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Considering all of the facts, church, it is divine. It is God-breathed. It's going to get us home. It's complete. Revelations 22 and 18. For I testify unto every man that hears the words, of the prophecy of this book, we read this last week. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in the book. Verse 19, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. And, and throughout history, people have questioned the accuracy of the entire Bible. They'll, they'll acknowledge that it's inspired, but maybe not completely inspired. They'll add scriptures. But rest assured, church, it is canonized. It is the standard measure. That's what the word canonization refers to. It's the standard measure. There's a story of this butcher who has one chicken left. And this lady comes into the butcher's shop and she says, Do you have any chickens? He says, oh, yeah. So he goes into the freezer. He doesn't tell her he only has one left. And he brings out a chicken. He says, here you go. And she looks at it. She picks it up. She says, it's too small. Do you have a bigger one? He says, well, sure. So he picks it up. He goes back in the freezer. He waits a minute. Comes back out. Same chicken. He says, here you go. This one's bigger. She looks at it. She says, it sure is. Can I have them both? <laughs> 
The point is that there is one measure. One. It's God's word. It's not people's opinions. It's not what our government believes or doesn't believe. It's not what your best friend believes or doesn't believe. It is God's word. That's the measurement. Nothing else, nothing else will get you home. This will. And there are instances in church history where things were have been added, have been taken away. Scripturally, the, Trinity, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. That was added. That was added by Constantine. That was added by the Roman Empire to make pagans feel more comfortable with the church. Why did the Romans accept Christianity as the official religion of Rome? It's actually quite simple because the uh, Christian church was a very passive group of people when it came to government. They, they would not rise up against governments. They would not. They're, they were too concerned with reaching the lost and living for God. And so the Roman government found that they were very easy to deal with. And so, you know, the rest of the story. Babies being baptized are not scriptural. You don't see it. Sprinkling is not scriptural. Praying for the dead. Orthodox, repetitious prayers. These are things that were added. The Holy Ghost experience, that's in the Bible. Baptism in Jesus' name by immersion, that's in the Bible. Separation from this world, that's in the Bible. Prayer, that's in the Bible. Speaking in tongues, it's in the Bible. Lifting your hands, amen. I wish that all men everywhere would lift their hands without wrapping them. Right? Pray with the lifting of hands. The gifts of the Spirit, selling out oneself to the gospel. And yet, as apostolics, when we act this way, when we act, when we live a separated lifestyle, when we worship, when we, when we love church, we love God, we love the ways of God, we're, we're, we're considered odd, considered different. You need to sin a little. You need to, you need to lighten up a little. You need to, no, God's word. I need to, I need to live for God, right? Many churches and individuals, uh, we love His word, and we do worship different. I, I confess that Paul confessed it, but this I confess, Acts twenty four and fourteen. This I confess. Unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. They call it a heresy. I call it worship. Believing all things. I believe all things written by the law and the prophets. I believe it. It's heresy. Heresy heresy means a a dissenting view, unorthodox. Uh, It is almost the same foundational definition as a cult. A cult is a group of people who follow the teachings of a man above the teachings of the Word of God. David Koresh, Jimmy Jones, some of the largest denominations in the world are actually cults because they'll follow the teaching of a man ahead of the teaching of the Word of God. 
We are not one. But we have been called cults. We've been called heretics. We're heretics. Why? Modesty and dress. I could... One of the most frustrating parts of what we believe in terms of modesty, in terms of, of a, a lady's hair. One of the most frustrating parts of this is it's it's not even new. Every Christian believed this. A hundred years ago, every Christian believed this. Christian women didn't wear makeup a hundred years ago. Christian women didn't cut their hair. Christian women dressed modestly. Why? Is it, is it something some preacher came up with? No. It's scriptural. 1 Peter 3 and 3. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating a hair, wearing gold, putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. 2 Timothy Paul says to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 and 9, In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold and pearls, or costly array. Now that's King James. And uh, uh, shamefacedness and sobriety, those were common words in 1611. But they're not words we use today. So when you read scriptures like that, you've got to find another, you have to find another translation that has that has put the original Greek into words that we use. Ladies, I don't want you to walk around shamefacedly. You have nothing to be ashamed of. But the word shamefaced didn't mean the same thing that it means today. So I the New American Standard updated, which is uh, just personally, it's my favorite version. 1 Timothy 2 and 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hairs of gold and pearl and costly garments. For Psalms 149 and 4, For the Lord taketh pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Deuteronomy 22 and 5, The women shall not wear that which pertains to a man. Neither shall a man put on woman's garments for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. That word abomination means it's disgusting. It's improper. If it was an abomination to God then, it still is today. God doesn't change his mind when it comes to abominations. We live in a world today where, where many people dress to get someone else's attention. They want to push the envelope, or it's just how they've been taught to dress. It's how people dress. It's not they're being rebellious. It's just... This is how everyone dresses. I guess this is the right way to dress. But I, I tell you that if you go, ladies, if you go to a mall in tight-fitting clothes that leave nothing to the imagination, that show lots of cleavage and lots of skin, uh, uh, take a friend with you and just watch how many guys will, will turn and watch you as you walk by. And, and they will. But you, you go to that same mall and you, you dress modestly. You have a humble spirit, and and you'll be treated differently. You will. My my point is, church. God is a God of covering. He covers us with His blood. Amen. He covers us with His spirit. 
He covers us with his mercy. The one thing God does not do is he doesn't expose us. He covers us. He is a covering God. And church, we believe what we believe as apostolics, not because Brother Bernard wrote it in some book. We believe it because we find it in Scripture. Now, church, as your pastor, I leave lots of wiggle room. I know we live we live in a world where where it's not always easy to to uh, 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 to dress in in an extreme modest way. You have uh, exercising, you have uh, job situations, but but church, uh, you no matter what you wear, you can dress modestly, right? You can dress modestly. You can, and guys, the same with you and me. I can dress modestly in Jesus' name. Uh, we live in a world that that we really can let this world know how we act, how we dress, how we live. That that what we have, we believe it's God's word. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Matthew 5 and 17, the Lord says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. God's word is it it is true it is yea and amen somebody once once uh uh said to me yeah but don't you you know God's word uh talks about you know um trying to think what the subject was it it, it doesn't matter you know God's word talks about perhaps it was about fasting God's word talks about fasting that that word to fast but but you know that that was two thousand years ago. We don't we don't need to fast today. That that was for them. That's not for for us. And so many Christians don't fast anymore for whatever for whatever reason. It's almost as if it's almost as if this is a myth that you know Jesus walking on water didn't really happen. Like it's an urban legend, right? That that did come on, did Peter's shadow really heal people? Did did the cloth really I mean did 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 Paul really pray over Eutychus who had fallen out of the window while they were he was preaching on a Sunday night? Did did Paul really heal him? Was he really dead? You know, and uh it's just myth, it's urban legend. And people believe urgent urban legends, you know. There's a common myth that you only use 10% of your brain. Well, we are, I've taught that since I was a kid. 10% of the brain. That you have so much potential in your brain. You have so much potential to use. But we only use 10%. If we could just use more, we'd be smarter. Church, trust me. If, if I could figure out a way to just turn on a switch and be smarter, I would. Like, oh, I'm going to try to use 20% today. It's scientifically, it's it's not possible. I, I looked it up tonight just to be sure. It's a, it's a myth. There is no such thing as you only use 10% of your brain. It does not exist. 
Just somebody came up with that years ago. In the late 1800s, some scientists said, you know who had just visited the wall of China? Wow, this thing is so huge. It, I, I, I imagine it's the only man-made structure you can see from the moon. That was that statement was made at the at, in the end of the 1800s. People still say it today. You know, the only human structure you can see from the moon is the wall of China. It isn't true. It's not even close to true. You can't even see the wall of China from the space station because it's 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 earthen. It's the same color as the Earth around it. So from the space station, you can see big highways and you can see dams that are different colors than everything around it. But the last thing you can see is the Great Wall of China. I looked that up tonight to be sure, too. It's these. There's so many legends out there that people say, well, you know. But then when you take God's word, hey, this is true. I, I live my life. I believe in Jesus' name baptism because God's word says it. Oh, that's just a urban. That's just a myth. You don't need to be baptized to be saved. It's just an external thing that reflects what you've already done internally. Really, show me the scripture. Show it to me. That says baptism is just something externally that shows what's already happened internally. You won't find it. It's not there. Instead, you find scriptures like Paul says, Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord, washing away your sins. Arise and be baptized, being buried with him in baptism. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And so, so church, it's not a myth. It's not an urgent legend. It's God's word. And it'll get us home. It'll get us home. Let's stand tonight. Thank you, Lord. Let me end with this. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I talked about a little bit, but I, I think it's pretty interesting. The, the scrolls, it's been determined that they, they were written around 100 B.C. 100 B.C. this was written. Amazing. And so they compared Hebrews, they compared Isaiah, I'm sorry, chapter 53, from the scroll written some 2,100 years ago, and Isaiah 53 that they find in Hebrew synagogues today. Of the 166 words, 17 marks like a crossing of a T, were different. Ten of the 17 were simple changes in spelling of the same word due to modern language. Like the word cancel. Modern language only has one L, but the old English has two L's of the word cancel. Uh, four of the, of the changes were stylistic changes of conjunctions. Again, modern language. Three of the marks, they made the word light, that, that, that make the word light, were missing from the scroll. And this word is found in other manuscripts, including the Septuagint. So after 
2,000 years, the, the scholars determined 2,000 years separated these two writings and the scholars determined that they were the exact same thing. God's Word. Amen. Church, you can trust it. You can trust it. Amen. I love them. Let's, let's worship for a moment. I love your Word tonight, God. I recommit myself to it. It means everything to me. God, it will get me home. It'll get me home. It'll, it'll give me direction. It'll give me purpose. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done, God. In the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord.